0: Well, I walked uh, in the door this morning and it was immediately met with uh, uncertainty and confusion about why this passage is so short. (laughs) And um, I thought you deserved a little bit of a break. Usually if you're just here with us for the first time online or here, uh, it it will... uh, (laughs) Our passages usually take about seven minutes to read. I think this sermon could come in at under seven minutes there 's just a little tiny bit here so um, but i 'll do my best to uh, stretch it out so don 't worry um, one One note too. I took my eye off the bulletin again uh, i 'll be reading from a different version that 's in the bulletin i 'm going to read from my phone here, the English standard version. So uh, pardon me for that confusion. You can follow along just fine in the bulletin if that's what you have in front of you, or uh, you can listen, but I'll be referring to um, this translation throughout the message. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, I thank you for your mercies. I ask you please um, to instruct us, to teach us, to show us um, who you are, who we are, who we're not, and how to abide In your providence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 130. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Well, the developed world and the privileged church like this congregation and all really in the West, certainly in the United States who live in it, um, doesn't wait well. Waiting's not really our thing. Um, So we need to learn to wait. And uh, since COVID broke out, we've been in this sort of global DMV office waiting for our number to be called. You know, there's, uh, there's this problem and that problem and variance and supply chains and, you know, all manner of things. We're not really very good at it, um, but we need to be because it's at the center of what it means to hope in God. I, I would want us to know what I think Joseph learned, which is that the wait is worth it, but the wait is also work. It takes a stewardship of soul to wait on God. We've already seen that Joseph waited. Um, we even had a sermon about that, but now we're going to look at this poetic expression that we might learn how to wait. What is waiting? Well, waiting is what humility does. You might say that uh, humility is Waiting's verb. And these two psalms, these sister psalms, these siblings, right one after the other, we'll we'll look at their structure a little bit first to see how they integrate, and then we'll unpack each one, and um, we will hopefully learn um, how to wait. Learn that God um, is always working, waiting before him, and waiting before our own desires with humility. That's what this message, that's what these psalms are about. But first, let's look at the psalms and the structures themselves, and then we'll dig into each one. Well, I want us to see from these two psalms is that they have contrasting tones and common themes. They're clearly intended to be together. That's why the Psalter puts them back to back. So um, if you could open up and they'll be fine, the bulletin um, version will will display this clearly. Um, the contrasting tones go in this way: the the first psalm is filled with angst and and we could say linguistic squirming. The the psalmist is overcome. The second is ironic and peaceful, not stoic, but there's a vital calm um, in the psalmist's heart. The first is filled with dread of God, whose holiness cannot be tamed by his offerings, and. Um, The second psalm has no dissonance at all. The the psalmist is at peace with God's uh, sovereign graces. We might say that the first psalm is about uh, a phrase in the Bible, um, a name for God called the fear of Isaac. And it's the name used when Isaac is offered up and then rescued at the last moment. It's this transcendent, overpowering, Um, uncontainable God. And the second song, that's about transcendence. The second song we're looking at is about God's imminence. We might call it what Jesus referred to as the bosom of Abraham psalm. What I want us to see as we walk through these two psalms is that both of those are how we live before God. We live before God the great and God the near. The transcendent and the imminent. The far away and the nearby God. The tender God and the majestic God. And living in between those two, as we'll see in the cleft of them, is where humility um, is born and bred, where we can steward it in our lives and learn to wait by it. Because no one in this room is good at waiting. I know that because no one in this world is good at waiting. (laughs) Waiting is perhaps the most taxing spiritual discipline to develop. Takes the full three score and seven and all that stuff, all that King James living that we need to do, that language, takes a whole lifetime. So let's take a look at these psalms then, one after another. The first one is um, about humility before God. And that's what we want to take a look at. Out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. The psalmist is overcome. This word is used only uh, five or seven times in the Scriptures, and every time but this one that I could find, it's always associated with the overwhelming flood of waters that come. In the Scriptures, the waters ever since the flood with Noah um, are, are often used, perhaps most often used, as images of this overwhelming providence that's too extreme and vast to control. The psalmist is crying out from this deep, dark place. And all he can do is cry for mercy. That's a characteristic of being in the full extremity of despair. When you have no plea, no bargain, when you have no grounds by which you can um, plea your case or leverage your claim or demand your deliverance, when you're completely at the mercy of God, abject total mercy of God, would he act or not act, that's when you're in that place. Now, I have two observations about that. That uh, It's not uh, many of us have really been in that place. I'm sure some of us have. Perhaps a number of us have. But to be in this place where you are, are too um, far down, too deeply um, underwater, as it were, that's not a common place for us. Not a common place um, for us to live. And the reason... Um, for that, is that we have so many resources around us to get us out of trouble. I mean, that's that's what we do. We have a, a continuum from our own personal wealth or resources or family. Um, most of us, not everyone here, of course, but we we certainly live in a functional society. I know that's striking to you. Um, you may not think we live in a functional society, but I assure you, travel the world a little bit. And you'll realize that we're killing it here. There's a lot of places that aren't like this. But all this kind of stuff insulates us from this despair. It's a, it, it is, a, as it were, um, an inoculation against the shortness of our arms and the weakness of our legs and the inability that we have. There's so much to distract and medicate us to um, help us uh, forget that really, unless God exercises his mercy, what does it matter to gain the whole world and forfeit even your soul? Our daughter, um, we don't have children anymore, we have adults, but uh, when she was a child, um, she was very sick. She's probably about four, and um, she was, you know, throwing up and doing all the things in the middle of the night that sick children do. She had a fever and she was laying down on the bathroom floor um, on, uh, on, a, on, I guess, probably on some towels and stuff. And we were sitting there watching her and, and uh, she caught her breath and she said, she, she said the American cry that every American knows. This can't be happening to me. Well, yes it can. Yes it can. There's anything we've learned is that we can't insulate ourselves against every threat. Against every hurricane, against every tornado, against every virus, against every economic downturn, against every unfaithful relationship that we're in. We we can't do that. There's no such thing as that. So yes it can and um and that should lead us to humility this this next word is this next line seems out of place to both the secular world around us and and to Christians who have misunderstood grace the the secular spiritualists if you will think that why why all of a sudden is this desperate weak weeping crying person talking about their sins oh lord if you should mark iniquity who could stand but with you there's forgiveness why are we talking about sin all of a sudden because but the reality is that the, the overwhelming um, brokenness of the world is born of sin. It's the fruit of sin. It's the dysfunction that comes from sin. It's not this uh, pre-scientific medieval foolishness, and uh, that's what the world might think. I, I think what the, the church would think is, well, well, grace means we don't have to worry about that right now. God is most concerned right now with the fact that I'm freaking out that I'm overwhelmed, that my heart's broken. Well, God is concerned about all those things. Although the idea of freaking out is never specifically used in that language in the Bible. There's a lot of images of people freaking out and God's concerned, but, but, but what God understands at the core and the root of the issue is our brokenness. What if your whole world went well? What if everything happened according to your plan? What if you had joy every single day? And always got what you wanted, and your sins were not forgiven. The church thinks um, that we've moved past this idea that being overwhelmed should draw us to the need to confess our own sins. The the psalmist is not saying. I am overwhelmed because of this specific sin. He's saying, I'm overwhelmed and I have sin. It makes me think of of what I really need. And with you, O Lord, there is forgiveness of sin. Therefore, you are feared. When my... uh, my dear uh, sister, she lives in Virginia. She had infants uh, premature twins, and um, tragically, one of them didn't survive. This was 25 years ago. More than that, actually. She didn't have any background. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. She' was very well read and, and understood. And I, I went to uh, the funeral, and I drove there, and we went up to the twins' room. One empty, tragically, one empty crib, as you maybe some of you have endured this unspeakable grief. And she said, um, You know, Michael, this must be punishment. She caught me off guard. And I said, Well, I had a category for this, but I wanted to know what she meant. She said, well, I don't think her husband, I don't think Chris and I sinned. I I don't think we've sinned and we're being punished necessarily. I I just think this can't be the way the world's supposed to be. It's got to be punishment. If you're exploring Christianity, that's exactly what the the Bible says about death. She, She was overwhelmed with unspeakable grief. There's not... You know, you can be an orphan or a widow or a widower. They, it's so bad. As I think I've said before, there's not even a name for someone who lost a child. But she understood that that was connected. That that our absolute dependence, and that's what what hum, where humility starts. It starts with being overwhelmed, before a transcendent God in a world that's too big for you. And then it, it digs deep when you realize that deliverance is. An abject dependence on the merciful grace of God. You have no foothold, no handhold, no hope of deliverance at all except the absolute, unfettered, unobligated love of God. And that, well, that is a, is a frightful place to be. To, get, to have nothing to say, to nothing to commend, no matter how deep your wound or, or um, hard your trial. To know that in the midst of all this, still what, what you have only, which is all, if you're exploring Christianity, you need, is to cry out to the unobligated mercy of God and His Son, Jesus Christ, That's what he wants. That's where humility not only begins, but is is driven down into the soul. And that's where you find this, this assuring, comforting terror before the greatness of God. We're often told that the fear of the Lord is not really fear of God. Well, I'm here to tell you it absolutely is fear of God. It's it's an it's a fear that's assured. It's a fear that knows it will be comforted, but I'm confident that when I see God in the fullness of His glory, um, it will be disturbing and glorious and wonderful, frightening and comforting. Um, give me an adjective, and yes is the answer. So then the watchman waits. This psalm. Um, this psalm. Um, the psalm. We're only halfway through this, so don't worry. We've got uh, we've got plenty of stuff to cover. So he waits. So what do we do? Well, that's this the the beginning of this great humility before this great God. And then he waits. He waits like a watchman waits. He keeps um keeps his eyes open for what? Well, he keeps his eyes open for mourning. And this is. Very important. The idea of mourning here is, is tied to the plenteous redemption that is coming. He's waiting for what? And this is something to train a humble heart what to wait for. Um, the, the watchman, remember this repeated, this repeated cycle we saw? He, the, the waiter is mentioned twice. Who is waiting? The watchman or the child? And the, the watchman is waiting, uh, not for the enemy. He's not watching for the enemy. Uh, he's not watching for deliverance. The watchman is waiting for the end of their watch. The watchman is waiting for the dawn. The watchman is waiting for redemption. Listen, pray for the deliverance of your child, for um, the rescue of your business. Pray for your health. Uh, pray for all those things. Pray for your, your relationships, your family, your family. And then watch for those to be delivered. But remember, you're not waiting for the next thing only. You're waiting for the ultimate thing. If you cast your eyes far, wait all the way to the morning. Not just for the deliverance in the night, but the dawn of the glory of the Son of God and the fullness of redemption, if that's what you wait for if that's what your eye is set upon, if you understand that no matter how long you live, that horizon is always still in front of you, well, then you'll have strength to wait. Then you'll know that when some provision comes, or there is some, some what we might call proximate deliverance, then you'll know that's good. That's good. Let's celebrate that. But let's understand that we're still waiting. We're always waiting. We're waiting, as Paul said, for the Son of God to be revealed in glory. That's what we're waiting for. The the good news and the bad news is that you need to wait way longer than you think you do. Because we're all just waiting for something to happen in our family, our business, our church, or whatever. And good, wait for those things, pray for those things. But keep waiting, as we'll see in a moment. But I do want to solve, there's um, quite a bit of controversy about what the best quote from Lord of the Rings is, okay? And one of the things, one of the bonuses of having me here is that I will solve this right now. So this, I'm not even charging you for this. This is this is Extra. Eragon looked at the pale stars and the moon now sloping behind the western hills that enclosed the valley. This is a night as long as years, he said. How long will the day tarry? Dawn is not far off, said Gambling, who had now climbed up beside him. But dawn will not help us, I fear. And here it is. Yet dawn is ever the hope of men said Aragorn. You are built to wait for the morning. And in in my view, every single morning that I wake is this promise of the great morning star rising. This great remembrance that there will be a day when the sun will no longer be needed because the Whole new heaven and new earth are filled with the light of the glory of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You were, made to, you were made to wait for the morning. The real morning, the full morning. Now, when you have a morning tomorrow, remind yourself that this is just a little picture of the morning that the watchmen wait for. And what comes that morning? Well, what comes that morning is, uh, I love this phrase, Plenteous redemption. That's a word you probably haven't used this week. Maybe you should use it on Thanksgiving. What does that mean? Well, that means that every lost friendship, every dashed dream, every sin, all shame, all brokenness, all of your scars, every night of despair, Every moment of uncertainty will be washed away in the brilliant light of the glory of God and his everlasting and infinite comfort for you. That means that there will be enough redemption. That means that that you will not wonder what God had done and why he didn't do other things. You won't won't, um, be remembering with regret or bitterness or sorrow any of these things in our lives that bruise and break us and discourage us that there's enough redemption to go around for everyone and for everyone's sorrows and griefs and tears and joys. You will not find your way into redemption and say to yourself, "This is it." This is what we were promised. There's plenty of redemption. Think think of it this way. As Paul says, uh, one of the writers of the New Testament, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how is he going to hold anything back from you? He already bought the heavens and the earth. You will not not be disappointed. So with that assurance, with that hope put off into the future, what are you going to do now? What does humility say you should do now? Well, if you will have humility before, the, before God and His transcendence, um, the second psalm will teach us the real work, which is to have humility before your desires. First, the knowledge of the humble, and then the desire of the humble. Let's look at that. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Well, that is the most unpresbyterian verse in the Bible. Because that's exactly what we do. If you're exploring Christianity, know this. We're the part of Christianity that figured everything out. So it's a good thing you chose here for that. Because we're experts at all things complex. In fact, we're so good at it that if something is simple, we can make it so complex that no one can understand it. But the psalmist has his mind humbled. The psalmist does not lift his heart up. His eyes aren't raised too high. He doesn't consider, meditate, contemplate, figure out, uh, tweet, blog, podcast about things that are beyond his reach that he or she doesn't understand. Humility begins, I think, with humility of mind. Repeat after me. I just don't know. And no one wants to say that. Like, everybody's looking around. Who's going to be the first person to say that? i The thoughts of the minds, the schemes are interpretives. We need to give those up. Humility gives those up. You, as we've seen in the story of Joseph, you and I, we don't know what God is doing. We don't understand the beginning from the end. We don't know what tomorrow Will bring, we we don't know what really happened yesterday in terms of its implications, and that's where um, the knowledge of the humble begin to find peace. God's ways are secret; His purposes are beyond tracing out. Probably my greatest weakness in ministry is that I always believe. The whiteboard. Despite the fact I put my plans up there, they all make sense. Despite the fact that that no one in my life has lied to me as much as my whiteboard. No one has deceived me as much as myself with a dry erase marker. So humble yourself. Stop scheming for your satisfaction. I'll try to do the same for me or our safety or our significance. I have some friends. So I played uh, football in high school and uh, Coach Jones was our coach. He was, uh, you know, he was a coach in the 70s. This, this is exactly what you think a coach in the 70s would be. And um, he was, uh, we were a pretty good team, and we were practicing once, and uh, I made the wrong move, and, and he, um, he informed me of my error. Let's just say that. That's all I want to say about that. And then, he, and then I said to him, Coach, I thought, and at that moment, he gave a phrase to some of, all of my friends, some of whom still use it to this day. 43 years later. He stopped me in the middle and said, Kelly, you think too much, Kelly. You think too much. And I got two or three buddies that will still say that to me. And I probably still need to hear it. Subdue your mind. Sit in the moment of God's providence even in his word, and say to yourself, that's beyond me. I can't understand this. I'm going to sit here and I'm going to wait. And when you sit there and when you wait, think of this like a child, this beautiful, poetic expression of the presence of God. The first psalm was this martial, um, we might imagine, armored, armed guards watching at a tower in a fortress. This profound and significant spiritual metaphor there. But then think of this one. This child, this child just uh, sitting on his mother's lap, like a weaned child with his mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. That's humility before what you want. What has a weaned child learned? Except that, that they're safe and they're hungry. They are learned or have learned or are learning that that the sustenance that they receive from their mother will still come, but, but in a different way, in a different fashion, by a different means. And this weaned child with its mother has come to terms with that, has understood that what once comforted and once assured, what was once available, is no longer available as they grow and pursue this life that they've been given. And that's the image God has for you. He wants you to sit on his lap, hungry, and stop crying. God loves and has patience for your tears, but, but you love and have patience for your children's tears, and you want them to stop crying, don't you? Is that just me? We, we attempted to have an overnight with our granddaughters uh, Friday night. And our youngest granddaughter uh, was inconsolable. So, I mean, like, we're not rookies, right? But at like 9.40, we called our daughter. I said, I'm bringing them over. I did. That's what I did. I, I put them in the back and, and I brought them over. I quit. I, I tapped out. And uh, it was really at the point where, where this little girl could not be consoled by anybody. You, you know, when, you, when your two and a half year old is saying, Don't touch me, you're like, Okay, maybe that's a clue that we need to get her to mom. And then mom was able to calm her down. And Sandy and I climbed into bed about 10 10. I was like, <laughs> this is what grandparenting is awesome about. So, um, But she did find comfort, but she didn't really get what she wanted totally. She wanted to eat again. She just wanted to do what she wanted to do, and so do you, and so do I. And, and until we learn that, that we need to wait hungry in the presence of our provider, that, that he can be as near to us as a parent to a child on their lap and not give us what we want the way we want it and we can sit there in peace. That's to be humble before your desires. Here's what I I hope you can take away from this. Life is too important to believe everything you want. Life is too important to believe everything you want. Remember, too, it's it's too important to believe everything you think. That's where the psalm started. That's what humility does. So, how do you um, how do you wait well? Well. Both of these psalms, and let's just move into some um, application here. Both of these psalms are about God's great work of doing nothing. God is so powerful and so brilliant and so kind that God does things while he doesn't do anything. In fact, if you walk with Christ for long enough, you realize that most of the time, God is not doing much. I'm sorry to, I know the parents are going to have to explain that to their kids on the way home. But there's a truth to it. He's just moving us along from day to day, making us wait for him. God's greatest work in my life has often been his refusal to do um to really complete the assignments that I've given him by the deadlines that I presented. It was all very clear. But God's uh, benevolent distraction and withdrawal has been um, one of his great gifts. And So wait. When, When you don't think God is doing anything, then know that God is doing everything right now. He's really working now. And then hide in this cleft between God's transcendence. With you there's forgiveness of sins, therefore you're feared. And and then God's um, imminence, like I'm right on your lap. So in that cleft is where you hide. You get both of those things. You you have both of those things. God is immediately present with you and um, infinitely higher than you. And you live in that tension, um, that benevolent, gracious tension. But remember this: waiting is active. Waiting is active. Um, two things we see about the, the, the one who waits here, one number or even three, you know, the, they cry, they watch, and they obey. They also sit still, so that's four. See, I'm already. Getting the sermon longer. But the cry, you, you cry, keep praying. None of this is to say, stop asking God to deliver you from your sorrows. You cry out. What does Psalm 130 say? I put my trust in your word, you obey him. And then you just sit still. Two more things. keep waiting don't be fooled by god's provision you're waiting for the dawn be thankful be humbled be generous when god delivers you but remember that's just a little thing you and i are waiting for the big thing you you and i are waiting for it all to be made right and then finally wait hungry the, the, the reality is, if you're not hungry, if, if you have everything you want, one, in some respects, I feel like that's where I am right now in my life. I, my wife and I are living the dream in so many ways. Our kids are, like, right there. They all have, like, jobs and stuff. They, they go to church. We have a fourth grandchild on the way. I've never been this happy in my life. And, of course, I'm Irish, so that's not saying a lot, but still... Still, it's true. But if that means I'm done waiting, if that means I don't want anything, well, that's not biblical contentment. That's worldly satisfaction. Wait hungry. Learn that hunger is your friend, reminding you that if you ate the whole world, you'd wake up hungry tomorrow. So wait hungry. All right, I, this is a bad form to end um, end a message with a long quote from a book, but you know, I'm not I'm not really your pastor, so I can do kind of whatever I want. <laughs> this, this is from A Brave New World, and this guy Mustafa Mond, who who runs this part of the Brave New World, um, is talking to the one guy and the one guy there that that understands this world. is neither brave nor new, and he wants the old, braver world. And he says, one of the numerous things, Mustafa Man says, one of the numerous things in heaven and earth that these philosophers didn't dream about was this, meaning all the religious philosophers before the world got awesome. His hand waved, us, the modern world, you can only be independent of God while you've got youth and prosperity. Independence won't take you safely to the end. Well, we've now got youth and prosperity right up to the end. You know, the story, they found a way. They cracked the code. Um, there's a little hint in the story, a thing called Soma, a drug that fills in the gaps. They haven't really cracked the code because everybody's, frankly, stoned on Soma all the time. But, um, but he's like, we cracked the code. What follows? Evidently, that we can be independent of God. The religious sentiment will compensate us for all of our losses, they said. But there aren't any losses for us to compensate. That's not far from the expectation of most evangelicals. A friend of mine once said that that the prayers of most evangelicals could be answered by a moderately wealthy individual. If you're not hungry, then you don't need God. If you have everything, you don't need to wait. But if you know, if you know that none of this will work without what comes next, then wait like a watchman and wait like a child. Wait for God's plenteous redemption. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercies. We ask you please to um, show us how to wait and to love you in the waiting. pray in Jesus' name, amen.